All right, so just before we begin, um, I brought you a treat. We're talking about gardening. I brought some seeds. So I'll leave them at the front. You guys can go through them and fight if you want over who wants what. There's everything. There's veggie seeds. There's flower seeds. And I think that's all, veggies and flowers. But make sure that you grab a package of seeds, um, partly because hopefully they remind you about some of the things we're going to talk about. So I'll just set them here. So I think we all know that there is nothing like playing in the dirt to give us some often needed perspective. And so I'm going to use this because it is my favorite picture of my kids. And they played in the dirt, or Nora played in the dirt and used her brother as a play thing, um, perhaps. Um, and, and what I want to do today is just share with you some lessons that I've learned in my garden or, or from spending time in the garden. Um, gardening or agricultural metaphors are found all throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, Jesus himself chose nature or agriculture as a backdrop for many of his parables. Um, and when we spend time in the garden, when we spend time in nature, the gospel stories have this way of coming alive to us. And so I just want to share a few things with you. I'm going to begin with this one. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the weed, the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And we read this one in, in Matthew. We've read it actually a few weeks ago. Wheat and weeds, let them grow together. Now, at first glance, it may make you question, I know it makes me question, why in the world Jesus would ever choose to use farming metaphors as his backdrop, because it appears that he knows very little about growing crops. Right? Any gardener or farmer, for that matter, knows that leaving weeds to grow is a recipe for disaster. I mean, what gardener leaves weeds to flourish in a vegetable garden? Weeds can take over and choke out seedlings. Precisely what Jesus warns about in his parable of the sower and the seed when some of the seed fell among the weeds, fell among the thorns. And not only that, leaving weeds to stay in a garden until they have grown seeds only guarantees an amazingly awesome harvest of weeds the next year. For a garden to flourish, weeds must go, right? Yet Jesus tells us something very different. Wheat and weeds, let them grow together. Now, two really important background pieces to this parable that he's telling. First, believe it or not, in Jesus' day, sowing weeds in a neighbor's field was a common way that people had at getting even with each other. So rather than spray painting somebody's fence or calling bylaw on a 
barking dog, they'd throw weed seeds into their neighbor's crop. This got so out of hand in first century Palestine that the Roman government actually passed a law against sowing weed seeds in your neighbor's field. That's important. Um, and the second is the particular seed spoken about in the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, was most likely a variety of rye known as bearded darnel, or darnel. It's got a bunch of different names, darnel, ryegrass, poison darnel, cockle, and perhaps most fittingly, wheat's evil twin. Now, I'm by no means a farmer, so bear with me, um, but Darnel is a mimic weed. It's neither entirely tame nor entirely wild. It looks and it behaves so much like wheat that it can't actually live without human assistance. Okay, the seeds are stowaways. The plant's survival strategy requires its seeds to be harvested along with domesticated grasses, stored, and then replanted next season. Now, I know that much has changed with the advancement of threshing and sorting machinery in agriculture, but the risk remains. Darnell is poisonous. You see, only near time for harvest can the fruiting head of Darnell on the left be easily distinguished from the fruiting head of wheat on the right. The plants before the stage look almost identical. One is poisonous, while the other provides sustenance. So you can imagine, by the time one can actually discern the difference between Darnell and wheat, the roots are completely intertwined, completely entangled. Pulling one would uproot the other, destroying any chance of a harvest. So the lesson that I've learned in my garden and from this parable, wheat and weeds, let them grow together. I'm thankful I don't grow wheat. Jesus gives an interpretation of this parable um, a little bit further down. And he says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are the angels. Now, I will be really honest. I struggle with this parable. Um, I find it complex. I find it a little bit difficult. It leaves me super conflicted um, and, and leads me even closer into this first lesson. Things are not always as they first appear. This year, after amending and planting my vegetable garden, I noticed some almost immediate sprouting, and I was kind of excited. And then I'm like, well, latent weed seeds, right? This is just weeds. There's no way that my carrots, there's no way that my peas have sprouted within 24 hours. It's totally weed seeds. But I decided that I would leave them in the garden so that I could weed and mulch my potatoes once the potatoes had come through the soil. Imagine my surprise when I realized that my Swiss chard had somehow overwintered. That the seed that dropped into the soil in the fall of last year had miraculously sprouted. I'm glad I didn't pull it up. 
things aren't always what they first appear. Now, Nigel has made very, very quick work of the Swiss chard. Lots of room for the potatoes to grow now. Um, it is, it is all gone. Um, however, we would never have had that gift because that's what it is, a gift. Had I just quickly pulled it up. Now, all of this to say, I've been a weed. We've all been weeds. And I'm very, very, very thankful that nobody uprooted me, that nobody threw me into the fire, cast me out, before God had his way with me. I am grateful for the people that God has surrounded me with that have helped to untangle some of that weedy, wheaty root entanglement that's going on. I think of what Chris talked about earlier with the twins. Um, and it, it just is, I mean, it makes, it makes us praise Jesus. I am so amazed at the family that has stepped forward to untangle some of the roots that both of those boys have. There's days, there's days when I'm still a weed. And there's days when, when you're still a weed. Um, and the truth of the matter is wheat and weeds in our world, it, it, it grows together. It is tangled. We exist in a world where good and evil coexist. Good and evil coexist. The blurry lines of the kingdom seem just outside of our reach. We fail. We grow. We fail again. Our roots are entangled. My roots are tangled with yours. Your roots are tangled with others. Sometimes the seeds that are planted really deep within us, they take a little bit more time to burst forth into the kind of noticeable growth that we might like. And so what I've learned is that things are not always as they appear. And God says none of us are qualified to weed God's garden. Let them grow together. God says, I've got this. I've got this. Be patient. Let me take care of it. You just take care of cultivating your roots, your wheat. Deal with your weeds. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And what grace that is. Because, you see, I'm a firm believer that we just don't quite know what beauty might spring forth from what appears to be a patch of weeds. So the one thing that I've learned, first lesson, I can weed my garden, but I can't weed anybody else's garden. It's not my job. It's God's job. Which leads me to the next lesson that I've learned from my garden. The importance of being deeply rooted. Now, defining what a weed is, and we're talking about weeds, can really be a matter of perspective. Some say every plant that grows in a place where it is not wanted is a weed. And that's probably a, a fair definition of what a weed is. In a vegetable patch, roses are weeds. But in any other space, 
they're a, a beautiful flower. For some, the most rampant weed of all goes by a number of different cultivar names. Let me give you a few. Red Fescue, Bent, Kentucky Blue, Bermuda, St. Augustine, all commonly known as turf grass, or that thing that you mow once a week. Maybe it's a weed. Or maybe those little yellow flowers that dot the landscape in early spring and for some perhaps unleash feelings of terror and horror. The dandelion. Now, I don't know about you, but who doesn't recall the joy on your children or your grandchildren's faces when they picked for you that first iconic dandelion bouquet? It's all a matter of perspective. Now, if you've you've ever tried to pull a dandelion, you may have noticed that the root is massive. A taproot. Maybe it's the monstrous root, because I've been pulling some of these, of well-established Canadian thistle. Yeah. The bigger the weed, the longer and thicker the main root. The root is evidence of the growth required for the longevity of the plant. Let's move away from dandelions, because they might be weedy, I don't know, and consider corn. The taproot of corn, or from a corn seed, grows underground long before the sprout ever breaks the surface of the soil. The root trying to firmly establish the tall corn plant that will eventually grow. Sunflowers, same thing. Deeply rooted to withstand drought, wind, and the unpredictable chaotic weather of Alberta in the spring and summer. And now just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will go strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Healthy, fertile soil is a prerequisite to healthy plants. Gardeners, myself included, spend much time and energy and expense to amend and improve the soil of our garden. Now, I'm very thankful that we are rural, and so there is sources of manure everywhere you look. It is wonderful. Now, not, not many of us would attempt, some, but not many, would attempt to plant carrots on our gravel driveway. The roots would have nowhere to go, and roots are the very first thing that a seed develops. Roots hide beneath the surface, but they are the life source of the plant. The health of a plant's roots are paramount to good growth. If anybody's ever purchased a a plant from a nursery where the roots are what's known as root-bound, circling in the pot... If you simply take it out of the pot and you stick it in the ground or you stick it in another pot, the roots continue to circle, and that which is meant to actually sustain life strangles life. Roots. Before a plant grows up, it grows down. Before we grow up, we need to sink our roots into something. And what we're choosing to sink our roots into um, is, is a question that we need to ask ourselves. The roots seek out nutrients 
The roots absorb those nutrients and distribute them to the rest of the plant. It's our roots, the plant's roots, that seek out water. Roots establish connection with the soil. Roots are all about a couple things. Nourishment and stability. Anybody ever seen a tree that didn't establish its roots and it was blown over by the wind? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. As followers of Jesus, we are called to develop roots. We are called to bear fruit. And we can only bear fruit if we are deeply rooted into the source of life, Christ himself. I've had some plants that have, have, have rotted from the ground up. Hey, the roots didn't get enough oxygen. They got too much water, and they simply rooted. The fruit that they produced, if any, was distorted and, and, and bitter and mealy and not good at all. Jesus is the living water. He tells us in John 15, Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Now, I've had tomato plants, and I have a lot of tomato plants. And I've had tomato plants where they have been fruiting and if anybody remembers the hailstorm that we have last year, I know Trish remembers it because she sent, she went to my yard and she checked and she sent me a mournful message to prepare me for the carnage of my yard when I got home. Um, but I've had branches break off that were close to fully ripe fruited tomatoes. Now, those branches can expend the energy that's left in the branch, and perhaps produce edible fruit. But that's the exception rather than the rule. We can't break a branch off a cherry tree, or a branch off of an apple tree, or a branch off of a plum tree, stick it in the ground, and expect it to fruit. Just like we, as lovers and followers of Jesus, cannot be disconnected from the source of life and expect to produce fruit in our lives. We need to sink our roots down into the soil. And we learn that the soil that we are to sink our roots down into is love. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. When we sink our roots into love, the fruit that we produce, it looks a lot like love. doesn't look a lot like rooms with little children separated from their parents. Consider the roots of a redwood tree. The tree itself can measure up to 350 feet straight up. And yet its roots only go five or six feet deep. 
Now that seems ridiculous after what we've just talked about, that we need deep roots, that our roots need to continue to seek sources of life, that we stress our plants sometimes in order to force them to root more deeply in search of water and nutrients. With a redwood tree, however, they make up for it in width, sometimes extending up to a 100 feet away from the trunk. They thrive in thick groves where the roots can intertwine, there's that word again, and even fuse together with other trees. The roots we develop as we participate in the kingdom of God, though sometimes weedy, thrive when they are intertwined with the roots of our brothers and sisters. I plant my pepper plants together because there's something about two being better than one and three actually being even probably better than two. They lean on each other and they support each other and their roots intertwine and they grow. And that's what we need to do. When we fuse together in obedience to Christ and support one another, we can grow in ways beyond our imaginations. Kind of like a redwood tree. Which leads me to prickly discipleship. Fruitful branches, according to John 15, in his his metaphor of God as a true gardener, fruitful branches remain on the vine, but they still get pruned. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Almost our entire yard is edible. I believe we have one tree in our yard that actually doesn't have something you could eat. My kids have tried to eat leaves, but it's not edible. Right? Um, and some of it is out of control. Some of it is out of control. That's my rhubarb by my alley. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you can. I have three different rhubarb plants scattered throughout my yard. My rhubarb is out of control. My raspberries are out of control. I blame Andrew and Sharon because they came from their farm. So there's something mutant about these raspberries. There is something mutant about this rhubarb. This year, I radically pruned my raspberries. And when I say radically pruned, I cut them to the soil. Every single raspberry. Sharon, look at that. I cut them all the way to the ground. Like I say, mutation. They're back bigger than ever. (laughs) Which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if they weren't growing exactly where I don't want them. 
Just might make them a weed, right? Right in the middle of my spaghetti squash. Spaghetti squash, raspberry. I don't know. And pruning raspberries is no fun at all. Okay? They're prickly. They're deceptively hardy. They have a slingshot quality about them if you don't quite get them cut right. And they're full of hidden surprises, namely the home of many not-so-friendly insects. And yet the act of pruning offers insight into the joys and difficulties of discipleship. I am the true vine. I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. Jesus tells us. And then he proceeds to say, listen to this, this is to my father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Discipleship is not a solo endeavor. The starting point of discipleship is always abiding in Jesus. We are all branches. We are all rooted in the same soil. And as we abide in Jesus, we abide with others. And that can get a little bit prickly. It can be uncomfortable. And yet it's absolutely necessary. Because though fruitful branches, as I said, remain on the vine, they still get pruned so that they can produce more fruit. And sometimes that pruning comes from a well-placed comment from one of our brothers and sisters. Sometimes that pruning occurs during suffering. None of us want that. It's a often overlooked aspect of discipleship and an often overlooked aspect of gardening. That pruning makes that which is being pruned rely on what is around it. Anybody ever seen a tree bleed? Trees bleed. And the branches and the trunk and the leaves around where that injury, pruning, trimming has occurred take up the slack and support the healing of that tree so that it can become more fruitful. And that's what we're called to do when it comes to discipleship. Sometimes the pruning we endure is for the glory of God and for the benefit of another. If my branch prevents another branch from fruiting, from flowering, from producing that which it was meant to produce, then I just might need a little bit of pruning myself. Fruit. I like fruit. In order to produce fruit, we must work together. Now I want to shift gears a tiny bit. We're still going to talk about prickly discipleship, but from a different perspective. We read this remarkable, amazing little verse in the prophet Hosea. So for yourselves, righteousness, reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. 
Now, as can be seen earlier in the book of Hosea, was one of the 12 minor prophets that God used to call the nation of Israel back to repentance. Earlier in Hosea 8, Hosea walks through the garden of Israel. And he walks through and he catalogs what the nation of Israel has been planting. And he looks at all these proverbial plants that he sees. You have sown wickedness. And now you will reap heartbreak and exile. You have planted idolatry, and now you are reaping estrangement from God. You have sown the wind, and now you will reap the whirlwind. And that comes from Hosea 8.7. What are we planting? What are we sowing? What are we reaping? That can be prickly, because sometimes we reap what another person has sown. And sometimes another reaps what we have sown. And sometimes if you're like Nigel, you spill a package of carrot seeds on the front lawn and they somehow miraculously find their way down into the soil and you have a carrot patch that you have to mow around all summer long. But more often than not, we reap what we sow. And while that sounds like one of those common cultural cliches, It really is a biblical concept, and you can find it in Galatians 6. Jesus gives us a way to do a spot check on our discipleship. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Matthew 7.20 As we break up our fallow ground, and the Lord rains righteousness upon us, we will produce fruit as empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we remain connected to the vine. Fruit such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, commonly known as the fruit of the Spirit. As our roots sink deeper into Christ and his relentless love, and our identities become more and more embedded in his life and in his teachings, the fruit that we produce will resemble Jesus, will resemble the kingdom will resemble the vine from which it is nourished, because we all know a cucumber plant does not produce tomatoes. So the question I have is this, when I think about prickly discipleship. Are we bearing fruit? Now I'm not saying, is Marnie bearing fruit? That's important. Are each of us bearing fruit in our individual lives? But are we bearing fruit. Is our garden, is Clyde Christian Bible Church bursting forth with new growth, with new life, with deeper roots? Is it recognizable, this fruit, or is it distorted? What kind of fruit is being produced and cultivated in our lives as we participate with God? Because the kind of fruit being produced is reflective of the soil in which our roots are embedded. Now, one more lesson. But before this lesson, I need us to take a, a moment and have a listen to something. So have a listen. This is a song from some friends of mine, a friend of mine named, named Pete. And I want you to just hear the song. And I'll be a child, and I'll dance in your arms. This next lesson that I've learned is the most profound. 
Some I have had to learn over and over and over again. Sometimes I, I can imagine, you know, God looking down going, seriously, you haven't gotten it yet. Come on, I'm giving you lesson after lesson after lesson. And others, um, I, I've learned relatively quickly. This last one is, is ongoing. It's new and yet it's old. And, and I like to call it patient imagination because I'm not quite sure how else to frame it. Um, and to be honest, like I say, it's a, uh, it's an ongoing discovery for me. I've asked myself in, in the past month or two, um, just what my, what my motivation is, what my heart is, what my desire is to work with the kids at the school to plant a garden. And pure honesty, I, I'm not sure yet. I don't have, I don't have an answer. But what I know is that while planting a garden, might seem like an insignificant act. It offers us something very deep and personal and enduring. It's a reminder of the sovereignty of God over the earth and a very practical, incarnational way to participate in that which God has created. It's a powerful antidote to the cultural chaos that surrounds us. In a culture driven by immediacy, and instant gratification, gardening forces us to cultivate patience. And I'm not very patient. We have to wait. I admit, every single day, usually more than once, um, I go outside and I stare at my plants. I just look at them. And I stare at my tomatoes particularly, my peppers, um, and I search for growth. I search for a new flower bud, a, a new pepper or tomato just starting to burst forth. Um, and as soon as I plant my, my big vegetable garden, I get impatient. The minute those seeds are in the ground and covered up, that's when the impatience begins. Somebody doesn't grow fast enough for me. Okay? Plants, as we know, have a natural pulsing rhythm. And it, that rhythm dislikes speed. I like speed. I like quick. I like fast. It's gradual stages of growth, whether a tomato plant or a garden or us. Creates stability and strength. Remember what Jesus says. Seeds that fell on soil and the growth was remarkable immediately. And the roots couldn't support the growth. And so what happens? It withers. And it dies because the roots are searching for something that isn't there. Every day I inspect my plants. Every day I inspect my trees. Every day, I don't worry about the grass. It's kind of like a weed to me. But I inspect that which I'm growing. And yet I have to wait. I have to wait until the right time to harvest the fruits of my labor. And what it reminds me of is the resurrection. It reminds me of new life bursting forth from something that once appeared dead. We planted some cherry trees three years ago. Oh, they were weak, spindly, sickly-looking things, and I figured they weren't going to make it over the winter. And the next year, they didn't look very good either. The bugs greatly enjoyed them, attacked them. The year after that, they got some leaves. Positive. And this year they have grown leaps and bounds. They have budded out, and we're going to have some cherries. Now they're not enormous, 
that they're growing. Let's be honest. Think about a carrot seed. Think about a sunflower seed. Who could imagine that that little seemingly dead seed would produce life? A bounty of food for us, for the birds. And as my seeds emerge from the soil, because I impatiently wait and stare at them, I'm reminded of the waiting that God calls us to do. I'm reminded of the defeat of sin and death, the defeat of the principalities and powers, that while it seems as we look backwards like he snapped his fingers and it was finished, there was a waiting game in there before new life burst forth from the tomb. Last year, I don't have a picture of it. Last year, I discovered this might have been a gopher hole, might have been a vole burrow, might have been a mole hole. I'm not sure, but it was a hole, and that was a mound of dirt in my yard beside one of my garden beds. See, I had planted, my kids had watered, Shane pulled weeds, and believe it or not, he really did pull weeds, and he pulled a number of beet seedlings and a couple cucumbers, but, but he pulled some weeds, and our friendly neighborhood vole-slash-mole-slash-gopher harvested. I remain thankful today that this gigantic head of cabbage served as its sustenance for the entire gardening season, and it didn't move on to the other ones. And life is like that sometimes. Discipleship. Faith. We don't always reap the fruits of our labor. We don't always see the fruits of our labor. And this reminded me that God is ultimately the one who sustains. God is ultimately the one that makes things grow. And that my posture to the world should be like a child. As Paul tells us, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. As a gardener, I know that I can only control part of the process. I can prep the soil. I can use healthy plants that are suited to local conditions. I can provide care and nurture to the plants towards growth, but I can't make them grow. No amount of worry or work on my part can make them grow any faster, but I'll still stare at them. And sometimes in life, we must soak up the wind. We must soak up the sun. We must sink our roots into soil. But ultimately, only God can make us grow. In the Gospel of Mark, and close with this, in the Gospel of Mark, right after the more familiar parable of the sower, there's this short parable about seeds. And I, and I, I love this one. It brings me joy when I read it. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or get ups, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. 
As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. This idea of patient imagination allows me to behold what we could call the sacred in the ordinary, to observe the beauty that awakens in the garden, sometimes without me doing anything. I'll never forget the joy on my children's faces the first time they pulled a carrot out of the ground. I'll never forget the look on the faces of the great seven boys when their radish seeds broke out of the soil. Sacred moments where God reveals himself in very ordinary things. Or consider this, which takes us full circle all the way back to the beginning. Then we can go downstairs because I saw there's some treats down there. This past week, the grade one class was outside checking on their gardens. And I was there to help them, to help them identify some plants. And if you ever find yourself feeling down, go hang out with a bunch of grade one kids, a bunch of kindergarten kids. You won't be feeling too down anymore. We enjoyed the sight of newly sprouted carrots and peas and lettuce and radish. These kids marveled at the sight of their potato plants because they're getting really big. And as they will tell you, the eyes of the potatoes are searching for the light. Not a bad lesson. And I was helping one young boy identify some of his plants. They have a little just four foot by one foot area, each student. Um, and I was helping him identify something that was sprouting in his garden. And there was a lot of weeds, a lot of weeds. And so I just said to him, well, you know, these are your carrots and these are your peas and these are weeds. And if we pull the weeds, then there'll be more room for your peas to grow. And he looked at me, you know, innocence, curiosity. He's like, you know, Marnie, that's okay. I want to see how they grow. Maybe, just maybe, they'll be beautiful. All about perspective. Let me pray for you. Father, we ask you to give us eyes like a child. Eyes who can look with wonder at all that you've created. And allow us to see the future. Allow us to see the things that you dream that we could see. Help us to have perspective, Father, that allows us not to be weed pullers, but instead to support and to encourage and to allow even the weeds to become beautiful. For we know you tell us that you make all things beautiful and that you make all things beautiful in their time. We are so very grateful, Father, for you as our true gardener, one who prunes, one who sustains, one who gives life. Help us, Father, to be examples of you, to be examples of your Son, Jesus. Help us to reflect love and grace and mercy, to be open to the wonder and awe that you pour out into our world every day. Give us eyes, Father, to see these things. Help us to have patience. Help us to be like a child. Amen. And we can only bear fruit if we are deeply rooted into the source of life, Christ himself. There's days when I'm still a weed. 
sources of manure everywhere you look. It is wonderful. 